You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. We're so glad you tuned in as we continue our series on the national security role that will be played by minerals and our increasing need for them as we move from combustion engines to more and more electric-powered devices and vehicles. Our series, as you know, has focused on the Clarion and Clipperton zone and seabed mining of these minerals, just to illustrate the various and wide national security concerns that arise with any major shift in sort of the topography of energy consumption by a culture. So just to refresh your memories, the CCZ is located about a thousand miles south of Hawaii, a thousand miles west of San Diego, and it's not far from three countries, Tonga, Nauru, and Kiribati, which are small nation islands most Americans probably have never heard of. Now, are we headed for another environmental disaster, one from which we might not recover? And is the International Seabed Authority, the international regulating body under the Law of the Sea Treaty, are they really even authorized to manage the myriad issues that arise from seabed mining? So there are lots of issues here. And we've learned that, of course, the United States is not a party to the Law of the Sea Treaty. We continue our series today on seabed mining, but not from the perspective of the environmentalists, the conservationists, or the State Department, but we're going to switch to another area of interest, which is that of the subsea cable industry. To help us today, we have a guest who is a partner at the law firm of Harris, Wiltshire, and Granis, but he happens to also serve as the international law advisor to the International Cable Protection Committee, the world's preeminent undersea cable protection organization. And he represents the ICPC on various international organizations and treaty negotiations, including at the International Seabed Authority. And his name is Kent Gressy. Welcome, Kent. We're delighted to have you here today. Thanks, Elisa. I'm glad to be here. All right, Kent, let's educate our listeners. First, tell us a little bit about the CCZ and the Pacific floor generally. What is on the seabed there besides minerals, potato-shaped nodules filled with all sorts of minerals and fauna? So in the Clarion-Clipperton zone, which is part of the East Central Pacific, it's an area where there are lots of polymetallic nodules on the seafloor in deep ocean areas. But in the Pacific more broadly, there are also other mineral resources that are of interest to mining companies. But of course, our interest, my interest, is with the submarine cables that crisscross the Pacific. There are more than 100 submarine fiber optic cables that are currently in service, and they are the infrastructure of the internet. They sit on the surface of the seafloor in the deep ocean and including the Clarion-Clipperton zone, although there's only one there right now, which I'll talk about a little later. Uh, In coastal areas, cables are typically buried up to three meters to protect them from vessel anchors and fishing, which may not seem obvious, but those are the big threats to submarine cables statistically. More than 70% of cable damage each year uh, results from fishing and anchors. So that protects them in shallow waters, but those aren't issues in deep water, but increasingly mining is a concern there. Most people think of submarine cables as big, large diameter infrastructure, something very strong and resilient. Submarine fiber optic cables are roughly the size of a garden hose, and they are susceptible to damage from things like mining equipment, 
vessel anchors and fishing gear if those activities aren't coordinated. But those cables carry the vast majority, about 99% of international internet data and voice traffic. Okay, well, obviously the importance of them is clear, but let's talk a little bit more about the importance of these cables, the ones that we're referring to and what they do, why we need them and where they are. Sure. So submarine cables connect the United States to itself, including Hawaii, Guam, the Northern Mariana Islands, and American Samoa. And they also connect island groups to each other in the Marianas and in Hawaii. But they also connect the United States to Australia, New Zealand, Asia, and the Pacific Islands themselves. As I mentioned before, they carry about 99% of internet voice and data traffic. Note that it's cables not satellites. Cables are the old technology and the new technology. It started with submarine telegraph cables in the 19th century, and now it's fiber optics. The launch of new satellite constellations that you might have read about, like SpaceX, OneWeb, and Amazon's Project Kuiper, will not change that, as satellites still lack sufficient capacity and speed, and they're much more expensive than cables. So what do cables do? Most people think, okay, they carry internet traffic, but there are a lot of other activities that are supported by that connectivity. Beyond the internet and electronic commerce, it's global payment networks like credit cards, bank machines, financial transactions. Most people think, oh, we live in a wireless world now. Well, your mobile phone only connects you to the nearest tower, and then it connects by fiber on land to an undersea cable or a group of undersea cables if you're trying to communicate with the rest of the world. And so most of the world's mobile phone traffic is backhauled on submarine cables. Governments and militaries don't generally own their own cables for communications purposes, so they rely on commercial providers to carry their traffic. So it's critical for governmental and military functions. Certainly during the pandemic, we've learned that it's all about working remotely and using video conferencing. That could not happen without submarine cables. But there are a lot of other social uh, societal activities that have come to the fore during the pandemic, and we've depended on submarine cables to support them. Telemedicine and distance education depend all the more on that connectivity. And also, again, during the pandemic, entertainment, being stuck at home, it's good to have access to things to keep yourself entertained and also to keep in touch with people. So demand has increased considerably during the pandemic for submarine cables as a lot of activities have shifted online. But there's also been a lot of innovation in doing new things online, particularly with delivery of government services. Even when the pandemic wanes, I don't think that's going to change. And so our dependence on submarine cables is going to be even greater. That probably comes as news to a lot of our listeners. But we've been talking about the International Seabed Authority and sort of the range of their authority, as well as the law of the sea. And I'm wondering, because at least conservationists have opined that perhaps the International Seabed Authority is is basically overtaken by events, if you will. It's no longer fit for purpose. The scope of its authority doesn't consider the great complexities involved in the seabed. So I'm wondering what their role is, if any, in protecting these all important lines of communication and connectivity. So first, I'm I'm just going to set the scene with the importance for this legal framework for submarine cables and then talk about the ISA 
and its role with mining. Uh, the ISA has been controversial since the final treaty conference, which led to the United States not signing the Law of the Sea Convention, which I can explain a little bit. But the installation, operation, and repair of submarine cables depends critically on a stable legal environment and treaty freedoms and protections. And this is because cables, if you have a Trans-Pacific cable, it's operating in areas of jurisdiction of the landing countries. There could be more than two. Often these cables land in five or six different countries, but it also crosses areas beyond their national jurisdiction where no one country has licensing or regulatory authority. And the ISA, which is a mining regulator, also doesn't have authority over cables. So the importance of having these treaty freedoms and protections dates back to the 19th century with telegraph cables, which resulted in the first cable protection treaty in 1884. It's also enshrined in the 1982 Law of the Sea Convention, or which is often known by the acronym UNCLOS, UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. And that treaty states in its preamble the desire to establish a legal order for the seas and oceans, which will facilitate international communication. So this was a primary concern of the drafters in facilitating the communications that submarine cables provide. And there are many references in the treaty to submarine cables. These fall into two buckets. The first is the freedoms to install and repair submarine cables beyond the territorial sea of any coastal state and limitations on the ability of states to infringe on those freedoms, which unfortunately they frequently do, the United States included. Second, our obligation to protect cables from damage. The United States was ironically a prime advocate for the Law of the Sea Convention in the first instance. It ended up not signing the treaty in 1982 due to reasons relating to seabed mining that were later resolved in a 1994 agreement. But the United States has, since Ronald Reagan's presidency, stated that it observes the Law of the Sea Convention as customary international law. Uh, and that regime, again, supports cables. So the Law of the Sea Convention establishes the International Seabed Authority, or ISA, to develop and regulate seabed mining by contractors that are sponsored by member states and ultimately by an entity called the Enterprise, with a capital E, sounds very mysterious. This is a commercial arm of the ISA that has not yet been established, but would be the ISA itself engaging in mining activities. Any party to the Law of the Sea Convention is also a member of the ISA and has the right to vote and participate in the ISA's various decision-making bodies some of which are closed to non-members. The United States, as you noted, is not a member. It's only an observer. So it actually sits toward the back of the room like ICPC, my organization, does as a, a recognized observer. So like ICPC, the United States can speak, but it can't vote, and it's excluded from many ISA deliberations. Although the Law of the Sea Convention requires that states um, and meaning governments, show due regard or reasonable regard for other states' exercises of treaty rights, and those can include submarine cable installation or mining. It doesn't include a specific coordinating mechanism between cables and mining or a liability regime if there's damage to one activity or the other. 
And it's not going to be a cable damaging mining equipment. If you've seen some of the images online that are available, there's some ferocious looking equipment to operate in the deep ocean as opposed to a garden hose sized cable. Some mining contractors think they have the right to exclude cables from their contract areas, but UNCLOS does not give them that right. Again, the ISA doesn't have jurisdiction over cables, although we've been working hard to educate the ISA and members of the ISA about the importance of addressing cable protection in their regulations and recommendations and procedures. So ICPC has spent a lot of effort working to influence the forthcoming exploitation regulations, both directly and in partnership with other states, particularly France. We made a big joint proposal with France that was well-received by some countries and not by others because it would be seen to impede mining in some respects. But there are other countries that are supportive of cable protection within the ISA particularly, and again, we're talking about states, the United States is a non-member, but supportive, but others include Singapore, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, and also small island developing states like Tonga and Nauru. Ultimately, ICPC would like to ensure that the protection of existing cables is recognized and implemented, but also that there isn't route foreclosure, that there is the possibility of using new and diverse routes including across the clarion Clipperton zone in the future. All right. Well, this brings us to the organization that you are in and what its status is. You mentioned it has observer status, but can you expand on all of that a little bit? Sure. So ICPC, the International Cable Protection Committee, was founded in 1958. It was actually called the Cable Damage Committee back in the day. But it's the world's preeminent global organization for advancing freedoms to install and maintain cables both telecommunications and power transmission cables, and also to mitigate the risk of damage to those cables. So ICPC has about 180 private sector and also some government members from more than 60 countries. And it works with governments, other marine industries, international organizations, and NGOs to promote cable awareness, cable protection legislation, and effective international agreements. Um, It's an important part of its work, and this obviously is a focus with all the attention around the International Seabed Authority and mining with the environment. ICPC promotes peer-reviewed scientific research on the environmental characteristics of cables and cable-related activities, which have demonstrated to date that they're benign in the marine environment. But that's an important issue for the industry to not to degrade the marine environment and to support sustainable uses of the ocean. ICPC has recently launched government best practices for protecting and promoting resilience of submarine telecommunications cables. This is something I played a big role in and have used that in the partnership that ICPC has with the United Nations to develop cable protection and resilience plans. The first focus area is countries in the Indian Ocean region but this is likely to expand to the Pacific in the near future. So you noted we have observer status within the ISA. We have a memorandum of understanding with the ISA to promote the mutual interests of the two organizations. And so that's really with the secretariat, which is based in Jamaica, but we interact a lot with the member states and the various constituent bodies of the ISA as well. So I, in non-pandemic times, I spend a lot of time in Kingston, Jamaica. 
Sounds a bit like a junket, frankly, Kent, but good for you. All right. So, you know, there have been movies made about, you know, the positioning of subsea cables and so on. But I think most recently there was a volcano in the Pacific that was undersea. And we know of this because it really has knocked Nauru, I guess, and Tonga into some real serious situations. Why don't we talk about that tectonic activity, a volcano in this case, because there are volcanoes on the floor of the ocean and the topography of the ocean is significantly varied. It's not the flat surface I think many people picture, including a lot of these hydrothermal vents, which lead deep into the earth and can be the source of volcanic activity. So let's talk about the impact of that most recent tectonic activity, the volcano. What happened to cables? So first I'll note that in general, cable operators try to design routes to avoid things like volcanoes and hydrothermal vents and coral reefs and anything that could damage the cable or suspend it so that something could get snagged on it. And so uh, they also try to avoid seamounts because things that are very steep up and down also increase the risk that something is going to be suspended. So there's a lot of work that goes into initial route studies And then before a cable is, the design is finalized, there's actually a seafloor survey that's conducted by a a survey ship to verify the route has been optimized. And there's accounting for all kinds of human activities, including mining as well, to see where the risks are because the industry is very risk averse. Cables are supposed to have a design life of 25 years. It's expensive and difficult to repair them. So there's an effort to try to minimize damage at the outset. But in some cases, the earth changes and uh, volcanic activity can start in areas where it hasn't occurred before, where it can be more severe than expected. So last month's eruption of a volcano in the island nation of Tonga actually damaged two submarine cables. One connected uh, Tonga to Fiji and provided most of the international connectivity. And the other connected the capital island of Tongatapu to another island group in the north. And it ended up cutting off all communications for a period of time. This is actually the second time this has happened to Tonga since the international cable went into service. There was a vessel that cut the international cable a few years ago and ended up precipitating a a similar communications blackout. Ironically, the uh, secretary general of the ISA was in Tonga at the time of the blackout. For that earlier one. So you got a firsthand lesson in the importance of protecting submarine cables from damage. But I think the key lesson with, there's been a lot of written about the recent volcanic eruption and the communications blackout. But I think the key lesson here is that all nations need multiple and diverse cable connections. And it's that diverse, resilient connectivity that ensures even if one cable's damaged, a nation doesn't lose all of its connectivity. In too many cases, government policies force cables to cluster together in the same routes and at the same landings, meaning that a single event, whether a volcano, ship dragging an anchor, a trawler with a drift net, or a terrorist could damage multiple cables. And there are a lot of examples of damage where after the Pengchun earthquake in 2006 off the south coast of Taiwan, damaged all the cables going between Taiwan and the Philippines and significantly impacted the connectivity of Hong Kong and Singapore and their financial markets, which were great concerns for their governments. 
And both of those governments conducted a lot of studies afterwards about improving their resilience. I wish the United States were that forward thinking. To date, it takes for granted all of that connectivity, but it's not immune from these kinds of policies that magnify risks. For example, the creation of national marine sanctuaries on the west coast of the United States makes it almost impossible to land new cables either in Puget Sound, going to Seattle, or on much of the California coast, even though peer-reviewed scientific research shows that cables are environmentally neutral or benign. And there are research cables with the same materials installed with, by the same companies and ships in some of the sanctuaries as well. So there's, there's a little bit of hypocrisy there. But if you look at a map of the West Coast of the U.S., you'll see a lot of clustering of cables, particularly coming into Hermosa Beach in California. Due to a quirk of regulation, it's a lot easier to get in there than elsewhere in California. And also in Oregon, which has actively tried to attract cable landings. But the United States just doesn't have an agency or a centralized function to develop policy in this area and promote cable resilience. Well, I would say generally consolidating a series of potential targets in one location is just not a great idea in general, not, not just with respect to cables, all. but all right, but let's uh, be frank. We are talking about potential targets here and let's talk about U.S. adversaries. Do they have subsea cables as well? So most of the world's economies, both developed and developing. I mean, one of the things that we've seen over the past 20 years is an explosion of cable connectivity for developing countries, including small island developing states. A lot of it's been facilitated by the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank. But things vary. Obviously, landlocked countries depend indirectly on cables, but don't have their own cable landings. Both the United States and China depend heavily on submarine cable connectivity to connect themselves to their neighbors and to other points in Asia in particular. If you look at a map of submarine cables online, the best one is the most accessible is from Telegeography. There is a massive spaghetti web of cables connecting in East Asia uh, and many of those land in China. Russia, by contrast, has very few cable connections. Russia gets most of its international connectivity through terrestrial networks from its neighbors. It depends on submarine cable connectivity indirectly, but it doesn't have its own direct cable connections other than a few. As you know, there's been a lot of speculation in the media about whether Russia has developed specialized ships and submarines to locate and cut cables in the deep ocean. And this is a very sexy story. Any kind of malicious activity with cables gets a lot of attention, even though it's extraordinarily rare. As I noted before, it's mostly mundane things like fishing nets and vessel anchors. It's a low probability, high impact event with a malicious attack. So the technology for potentially attacking cables or damaging them may be changing but the incidence of it and nature of it is nothing new. This goes back to the late 19th century with the Spanish-American War, when the United States cut cables that connected Spain to its then colonies, Cuba and the Philippines. And this continued again during the World Wars, during World War I, with the British and the Germans cutting each other's cables. And that's just viewed as a typical action in war as reflected actually in the 1884 Cable Protection Treaty I mentioned, there's a specific reference to belligerence during armed conflicts. 
So cables can't be hidden. Otherwise, cargo ships uh, and commercial fishermen wouldn't know how to avoid them. They appear on nautical charts, particularly in shallow water. They can't be armored to withstand malicious damage. It would make it uh, unworkable to try to manipulate the cable and get it onto the seafloor. And it probably still wouldn't be enough protection. And it's just not practical to have a Navy with vessels patrolling an entire transatlantic or transpacific cable route all the time. So this just underscores the need for resilience, having multiple connections that are geographically diverse so that if something happens, whether it's an intentional act or not, that there isn't a communications blackout like there was briefly in Tonga. And before that, there was actually one in the Northern Mariana Islands in a U.S. jurisdiction. You know, there is a role for technology to play as well. There's a lot of interest in emerging fiber sensing technologies and even use of submarine drones, which are used in the pipeline industry to try to detect potential threats or, or risks to pipelines. Those can be used for cables potentially, although they really haven't been to date. But the idea is to detect and warn about potential damage in advance. So let's talk about, we, we've obviously got a system that is quite siloed in terms of our communications on these issues and particularly with respect to the seabed. But let's talk about what regulations there should be. So what should an international seabed authority have within its jurisdiction? And what advice would you give to those working on making the United States a member nation of the ISA at this time? So I'll take that in two parts. The first, there, there isn't a global regulator for submarine cables like we have for seabed mining. UNCLOS provides specifically that the ISA has jurisdiction over activities of the area, capital A, which is the seafloor and subsoil thereof beyond national jurisdiction. And so that applies all around the world. It's not just in the Clarion Clipperton zone or in the Pacific. But so there's, there's no express jurisdiction over other marine activities like submarine cables. And so that's the way the, the treaty established things. It treats cable installation and repair as a high seas freedom, as it does with fishing on the high seas, which can sometimes be uh, an environmental issue that has raised concern that's under discussion at the UN with a lot of other issues right now and negotiations over a new ocean law treaty called focused on biodiversity beyond national jurisdiction. So the Law of the Sea Convention, as I noted before, has those two buckets of provisions. One is jurisdictional and promoting freedoms, and the other is cable protections. So I think this has actually generally worked very well because it has allowed for innovation and expeditious development of infrastructure. And I don't think that would exist if we had a global regulator for cables that would slow things down. And certainly I don't think that there is a need for, for doing that from an environmental perspective. But it means that other institutions and instruments still need to account for cable protection and avoid infringing on those cable freedoms. And so that's what we're doing within the ISA itself is to ensure the cables are protected and to avoid route foreclosure. The other thing that we need to see more of, and this is actually something under study by a committee of the International Law Association, of which I'm a member, is focusing on gaps in existing protections and provisions for submarine cables 
is to have states observe their existing treaty obligations. There are a number of states that exceed their jurisdiction regularly to try to regulate cables or interfere with them and that also fail to protect cables. But if they implemented their existing treaty obligations, that wouldn't be the case. So the second part of your question asked about the United States becoming a member of the International Seabed Authority, that would require the United States to actually ratify the Law of the Sea Convention. This has been a long-running fight in Washington for decades. The concerns that led the United States not to sign the Law of the Sea Convention actually had to do with the International Seabed Authority and the Enterprise in Part 11 of the Convention. Those were resolved in a 1994 implementing agreement, essentially a second treaty. And during the Clinton administration, the United States actually signed the implementing agreement. But it's never been brought up for a vote for ratification in the Senate. Senate leadership has never found sufficient support and time to devote for what would probably be a lengthy debate. It's become highly politicized. Every chief of naval operations, defense and secretary, secretary of state in recent memory has supported ratification of the Law of the Sea Convention because it really is in U.S. national security interests. But it's so politicized that I don't see the prospect of that anytime soon. I've been directly involved in some of the prior efforts to achieve ratification because that would allow the United States to exercise its rights, enforce treaty obligations with other countries, to make them abide by the jurisdictional limits, make them implement treaty protections for submarine cables. But for now, the United States is sitting in the observer section in the back of the room at the ISA. That should be the section for those needing discipline, not for the greatest experiment in democracy in all of history. Ken, it's really been great to have you on today, and I'm glad that we're giving this some attention. I think it's interesting how it, it arose as an issue for us during this series. But nevertheless, it's really, it's been important. We're going to hyperlink the website to the International Cable Protection Committee for our listeners. Uh, What I would ask you to do is take some time here. This seems to me like an area of opportunity for young lawyers or for people sitting in law school right now and trying to say, where can I add value? I disagreed with everything Karl Marx said, except that he said man actualizes himself through his work. And on that score, I think that is the kind of animals we are, particularly those of us who go to law school. So what would you say to these young people trying to find their way and seeing this as a super interesting issue and one that they might like to get into? So when I was a kid, I was obsessed with my globe and with maps and always knew that I wanted to do something involving international issues, cross-border things, interacting with people from other parts of the world. And amazingly, that's what I get to do on a daily basis. I didn't have some grand master plan from getting from my childhood globe to where I am now. I would advise, and I served as the hiring partner for my law firm for more than 10 years. So I've talked with a lot of law students uh, over the years about their interests. I think it's important for anybody in law or otherwise interested in these kinds of issues to seek out broad exposure and to seize every interesting opportunity, no matter how inconvenient it is, and to work hard to make a name for yourself. 25 years ago, I stumbled into submarine cable work by chance because I had an interesting project as a young associate. And I was so taken with it that I stayed up all night, the first night of my project, trying to understand how regulation worked in that area in the U.S. 
And I later read just about everything I could find to try to educate myself about law and regulation in that area and also about the, the technology and the commercial environment. Later, I started seeking speaking and writing engagements to try to make a name for myself in that area and promote my expertise um, and find work on my own. And here I am, both with my law practice and as the legal advisor to ICPC. And I think that sounds like a great combination, actually. I think it says something about you that you're able to balance those two things, particularly as a partner in a Washington, D.C. law firm. So our guest today has been Kent Bressey of Harris Wiltshire Granis LLP and the International Law Advisor to the International Cable Protection Committee. Thank you, Kent. We hope you'll come back to discuss this with us further in the future. Thanks so much, Elisa. Join us for our next installment on the national security implications of minerals mining and how mining the seabed might have an impact on subsea cables that connect our telecommunications and global internet and payment systems. So remember, we'll see you next Thursday or when our new episode drops. And in the meantime, I want to thank you for listening. We do not take your attention for granted. So if you have topics or even series that you want us to take on and you want to give us feedback, you can find us on Twitter at ABA NATSEC, or you can send us an email at nationalsecurity@americanbar.org. Don't forget the lawyers hosting this podcast are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. Be well, everyone. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy. 